She went the same thing. You're listening to The Breakfast Show here on Faith FM, where Monica is going to do nothing except read for us the next quiz. I mean, she'll do other stuff too. The penultimate quiz. Yes. Which Bible author wrote the most words? A total of 100... And 25,139 words. Wow. Mm. I wonder how it's calculating that. Like, is it... What they do is they count. They go one, two, three, four, five. Monica, go home. (laughs) Okay, bye, everyone. I was trying trying to have a nuanced Bible (laughs) observation moment, you know, like, were they using a particular version or or was it Hebrew That was my first thought. I was like, which which version did they count? Yeah, but then it's like, uh, they probably went into the original Hebrew text. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but you had to ruin it, didn't you? So nervous you're about to say it. Yeah. Which Bible author wrote the most words totaling 125,139 words? I almost did just say I, it. I knew you were I knew you were on the cusp. Yeah. Give us a text 0491-064-669. Get yourself into the draw into the draw that's happening today, folks. It is the Telays. Uh 13 weeks of joy. Jennifer Jush was a really great book. Absolutely. Hey, we've had a bunch of different text messages coming in throughout the show. We had Feli writing in, good morning, breakfast team, love heart, love heart, prayer hands emoji. It's very, very cute. Uh, David Edgar writing in, he says, happy brekkie team. Happy, hello brekkie team, happy preparation day from from." WA. Oh, hey, hey, WA. We had some love for producer Shell coming in. Uh, Rachel writes in, Go Down Moses, such a great song. Please play again sometime. We play that one kind of regularly. Yeah, I like that one. It's, it's one, of, one of Shell's favorites. So we're, we're getting in there. She's big nods in the head. I actually knew that song before I was a Christian even. Did you? I remember my my sister would sing it all the time. I don't know how she come into contact with it, whether it was for, through Christian friends or whatever. But we'd be at home and she'd just go like, "Go down, Moses," and she'd just say that over th- and over again. I think it is sung by a famous singer who's not really known as a Christian. I think there's a cover of it that was probably quite famous. In, Shell, do you know who this is? Even in mainstream, who are we talking about? Louis Armstrong. Oh, that guy. Okay, was uh, it really? Dreams. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, you're right, absolutely right, yep. Yeah, so yeah. he he's he's the guy. We've also got a text message coming in from Wayne. Wayne says, good morning. What an uplifting interview to be in our hearts coming into Sabbath. The unconditional love God has for each and every one of us. Thank you, Brad, and thank you, Lord, for your unconditional love. Yeah, Brad was going hard. Like, mm. if you listened to the interview, you would have noticed me just going, hmm, yeah. Absolutely, because I 100% agree with everything you're saying, but he was just machine gun, like, da, da, da. And it's particularly on that issue of where does suffering come from, but then extended, like, well, how does that God solve that problem? And we see that it's wholeheartedly through self-sacrifice. God is a loving God. He's an amazing God. I love how he touched on agnosticism as, as well there. The idea of God potentially existing, but being uh, distant from this world and and now agnosticism really came to the forefront during the age of enlightenment it preceded uh what we would say like modern atheism is uh because atheism just wholesale rejected the idea of god whereas i think a lot of what was being shared in the age of enlightenment i think enlightenment philosophy itself isn't you know inherently terrible which is the idea of like test all things observe all things you know the i the uh what's the word called the scientific method Mm. but agnosticism really rose out of that because he had people who were culturally Christian, say a Charles Darwin, 
then be in a position where he's like observing the changes in species and then coming to conclusions like, oh, well, this must have taken place over millions and millions and billions of years. And so then it's like, okay, well, then if we we believe that there is a God, at least either from culture or from logic as well, you know, if you wind back the universe far enough, it has to stop somewhere. So there must be a God, but if the process is millions and billions of years, then he must be distant. And that informed a lot of 18th and 19th and 20th century belief in, say, deism, for example, you know, famous figures like William Miller, for example, who was a famous deist. He actually became an Adventist. He was a, he was a Methodist and uh, he was a Baptist and then, you know, uh, was the the pioneer of the the Advent message, the idea that Jesus is very much re- uh, returning soon. But his experience of religion and many people's experience of religion at the time was like, okay, we see these emerging scientific theories and we want to harmonize them with what we believe, but then that leaves us in a place where God is distant because it took millions and billions of years. And, and yeah, Jesus might ex- have existed and, and done some some really amazing things and whatnot, but is he really close to me? Whereas, again, when we see this narrative of Scripture and when we adhere to it, we see that God you know, has been working on our behalf since the beginning of time um, to save us. And oh, I, I love that point so much. And I love how, how Brad was saying that God is a God who is, is working in all of our situations and he puts himself in a place of, of sacrifice and he's, he's looking out for the betterment of his own creation and whatnot. And, uh, in my, so in, in my Torah exam that I did last week, uh, one of the questions was about the structure of the book of Deuteronomy. Okay. And if you weren't in class, then you got it wrong. And I had a friend who I was talking to and they missed that particular class where we talked about the structure of Deuteronomy. And as a result, they were, they were just like, oh yeah, well, Deuteronomy is structured. You know, it has some laws here and it, some this there and some this here. And it's all about Jesus's love and, and you know, and it's all about God's love. But the actual structure of Deuteronomy is that it's set up as an ancient Near Eastern treaty. Okay. So the book of Deuteronomy is actually set up as a contract. And there was a uh, a acronym that I used to remember how that works. It's PHS Bitter, which basically goes P. You've got preamble. So that's Deuteronomy 1, 1 to 5. And we see that the preamble is all about identifying. So in an ancient Near Eastern treaty, you've got an overlord and an underlord. The overlord is the the more powerful person who will benefit from the treaty. And the underlord is the person who will keep the terms of the treaty for the betterment of the overlord. Mm -hmm. And the overlord and the underlord in the treaty that Deuteronomy sets up is God is obviously the overlord because he's more powerful and humanity is the underlord. Now, it goes through, you've got preamble, and then you've got historical prologue, and then you've got stipulations, then you've got blessings and curses, you've got invocation of witnesses, you've got a deposition of the text, and then finally, you've got a ratification of the covenant. So that's the 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 system of an ancient Near Eastern treaty. And you can lay that over the book of Deuteronomy and see that taking place in that exact order. Now, there's many reasons that God would do something like this, but the number one reason is that it's actually very missiological and that word means that it had a missional purpose and the missional purpose of setting up the book of deuteronomy like that is because you if you're in the ancient near east and you start to read it and you're like oh this isn't like it set up like an ancient near eastern treaty it's like oh here's the overlord it's god here's the underlord it's his people but then when you come to stipulations and blessings and curses you realize god being the overlord 
and the overlord usually being the one who receives the benefit from the covenant. But in this ancient Near Eastern treaty, the overlord is receiving no benefit. The benefit is entirely for the underlord, which is humanity. God is the one who is setting up the covenant, who's defining the terms of the covenant, defining the stipulations of the treaty. You know, he's the one who's doing the most work in the treaty, all of these different things, yet all of the benefit is going to the underlord. And it's like, wait, wow. So anyone in that time having interacted with the Israelites reading the book of Deuteronomy or reading down, you know, Moses' writing of Deuteronomy would it would have just been floored by, wow, look at this God who acts in such a way, who is so loving, he's so different to all the gods we believe in who want us to sacrifice our children and mm-hmm. give him hundreds of barrels of oil or whatever it may be. This God is, well, thinks that is abhorrent. He's totally against that. But simultaneously, he's doing everything for the betterment of the people rather than the people doing everything for the betterment of the God, which is just so powerful. And we see that from right in the Old Testament. Again, uh, a lot of Christians have the perspective. It's like, oh, well, Jesus. And, and, and I think a lot of people who don't have biblical experience have this perspective as well. It's, oh, well, the, the Jesus of the New Testament is so loving and so amazing and so incredible. But the God of the Old Testament, he's so harsh. But you go and read the Old Testament, and it's like, no, this is the same God all the way through. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always putting his creation first, despite creation's moral failings. And this is what Brad was talking about. Despite the consequences that will come upon his creation or will come upon humanity as a result of the sin they'll do, God is doing everything he can to subvert those consequences, and to give humanity something better by the sacrifice of himself, which is just amazing. Like, we worship, we believe, and we follow such a powerful and awesome and loving God. You're listening to The Breakfast Show. Contact us on 0491-064-669. But in regards to awesome and loving and powerful, we're going to do a little bit of a Bible study this morning. We're going to be talking about the seal of God, and the mark of the beast. So, Ooh. Monica, go for us to Revelation chapter 14, and I want you to read verse 12. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12 for us. I am reading from the KJV, NKJV, and it says this, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Okay, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Revelation 14 verse 12 is essentially our identifying characteristic, our litmus test of who it is is following Jesus at the end of time. Yeah, and who avoids it in the mark of the beast. That's right. It's those who have the patience of the saints, um, who, which we've talked about on the show before. We've said we, we, we've ultimately identified that they're having a repentant and sanctifying relationship with Jesus. So they repent, and then Jesus is working in their heart. But they also keep the commandments of God. Amen. What we've seen in our Bible study up until this point is that Satan's final strategy is to get people to turn away from God in worship. The reason he'll do, the, the way sorry he'll do this is through firstly enticement. You know, so people will see the miracles and they'll be like super into it. And they're like, wow, that's, you know, something I want to look at and go after. But then afterwards, they, if they don't, you know, get in from enticement, they'll then be forced. They'll be coerced to, to worship self, to worship the beast, you know, which is the the antichrist power of the end time, Satan's institution um, of, you know, power. And they will be in, you know, uh, forced as well um, to, to do all of those things. Now, the question is, well, how does he do that? 
How can he get people to stop worshipping God? How can he get people to stop following God and putting God first in their lives at the end times? Well, there's a few different ways you can get people to just stop doing that. You can get them to stop repenting. That is like the first and foremost way that you can get people to not follow God. Like if they don't even feel like they're doing anything wrong. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in fact, it's when we look at Revelation chapter 3, the church of Laodicea, their biggest problem is that they don't repent. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't feel like they have a need for God. When you remove repentance from the equation, simultaneously you also increase lawlessness. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not repenting from the sins that you committed, and the Bible is clear that sins are a transgression of the law, well then essentially you come to a situation in which uh, people don't feel as though they need to change. They don't feel like as though they, there's anything that is different between them and their character and the character that God wants to live up to. There's nothing essentially to save them from, um, which again is sin. And sin is the choices that we make, the actions that we have um, that change us, that have changed this world, that has put us in a place where we have a, a will that is bent towards sin and that ultimately leads to death. God is wanting to change all of those things. God is wanting to fix all of those problems. But again, Satan's final strategy, he's like, okay, I'm going to get people to stop worshiping God. I'm going to get them to stop repenting. I'm going to get them to stop living in accordance to his law. Now, on Wednesday, Thursday, yesterday, we talked a lot about evolution. On Wednesday, we talked about how the institution or the, the one of the institutions that would be used would be foremost used by Satan in order to deliver this um, deception would be the papacy. Yeah. And we looked at the, the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. We looked at all of the different identifying characteristics. It's a small nation that comes out of Western Europe in the middle of the, you know, between the 4th and 5th centuries. Uh, we saw that it is a powerful and religious mm. nation that claims to be God. Small but powerful. To, claims to have the ability to forgive sins, persecutes people claims to change God's times and laws, which is something we're going to be particularly focusing on today. Um, And that, yeah, ultimately leads people away from God. And Although portraying itself as someone who's following God um, ultimately leads people away from God. And we're like, well, this is obviously the papacy. And uh, we, you know, if you missed that Bible study, you can jump on the podcast and have a listen to that. Um, or if not, give us a text, shoot us a text and we'll send you some information. 0491-064-669. Now the question is, okay, when we look at Catholic doctrine, is there something within that that pulls people away from the worship of God? Yeah. Um, and and replaces that with the worship of an institution or the worship of self. Now, I want to say almost several things. There are yeah. there are there are very many things. But I I want to do this. I want to survey the commandments because we know here that these are people who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. They have the, the patience of the saints. So when we look at the Ten Commandments, uh, and we we look at okay. You know, what, what is this outlining and what is this doing? The basic structure of the Ten Commandments is you have four in the beginning that refer to our relationship with God and then six at the end which refer to our relationship between each other. Now, the the Catholic Church thoroughly upholds the last six commandments, mm-hmm. um, you know, against adultery, against... Uh, killing, stealing. Killing, stealing. Yeah. And, and I mean by 
doctrine. Mm-hmm. You know, th- there are people doing all kinds of wild things, all kinds of churches and, and whatnot, you know, just because someone says that this is the, the doctrine of what they believe doesn't mean they necessarily li- live up to it. And, you know, there's great Catholic, uh, this great tragedy happening in the Catholic church regarding the breaking of those commandments. But, um, that being said, the, the Catholic church in terms of the last six commandments, you know, being against covetousness, all of those things, they uphold them. So then we look at the first four. And we'll start with the fourth. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Okay, you know, Catholics claim. They're like, yep, we, we support that. Let's look at the first commandment. We, we look at the first commandment of the Catholic Church, which is that um, essentially um, you have no other gods before you. They're like, yep, no, there's only, you know, there's, there's one God and whatnot. And we'll talk a little bit about that. The, the, sorry, the... Um, Sorry, the third and fourth commandment in a little bit. Um, but yeah, the first two com- commandments, you know, having no other gods, yet yeah, they, they uphold those as well. So then the question is, okay, well, you know, which, which commandments are they not biblical on? We have the commandment of not worshipping idols in the mm-hmm. Bible, which essentially mm-hmm. to not make graven images or carved images of anything above or below or anything that would be an object of worship. I talked a little bit earlier this week about how the 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 Vatican or the papacy through the catechism has released a different Ten Commandments, an updated and edited version of the Ten Commandments. And the one that is missing is that commandment about graven images. Um, and y- to combat this so that they don't have nine commandments that are set of Ten Commandments, they split the last commandment, which is the commandment regarding covetousness, in half. You know, the ninth commandment is, that shall not covet your neighbor's um, house or belongings of goods. And the 10th commandment is that shall not covet your neighbor's wife, essentially making it like a double adultery commandment. But what we see is the reason that they've done this is because they've deleted the second commandment. And this is because the second commandment is very much against a lot of Catholic practice in terms of idol worship and icon worship and saint veneration and all of these different things. Which I imagine is also going to make them a lot of money and they don't want to lose that income. Sure, yeah. sure. But the reason they would do this is because what we, because of what we see from Christian history, essentially. Again, we talked about the history of the Catholic Church early in the week and we saw that they went from Christianity within the Roman Empire went from totally and bitterly and utterly persecuted to the religion of the state. Mm-hmm. Now, it, that that didn't happen through the method of, okay, now everyone will become a, a, a biblical apostolic Christian, but rather a lot of it happened through the reskinning or the retooling of paganism, essentially to cover paganism or ancient Roman paganism with a Christian skin, where now instead of, you know, worshipping Sol Invictus, you now worship Jesus. But then it's like, okay, well, what about the other Roman gods? Well, now that other Roman god that you used to pray to that would give you help and, you know, I don't know, maybe um, good fortune in luck. Uh, and I'm, I'm just making an assumption. This is just an example here. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know exactly what all the saints in Catholicism do. But instead of you praying to, say, the god of the, the stars to give you luck, that god's now named Jupiter. Oh, sorry. Well, it used to be called Jupiter. Sorry. Instead of calling that god Jupiter, that god is now called Peter. St. Peter. St. Yeah, Peter. Yeah. And you pray to St. Peter in order to give you some level of help or mm-hmm. comfort or encouragement. And this doctrine of, of the veneration of saints is clearly in violation of the second commandment uh, because 
we're not supposed to pray to anything. We're not supposed to make statues out of anything. You can go to St. Peter's Basilica today and they've got the statue of Jupiter there, which they which was it's an relabeled. It's relabeled as yeah. the statue of Peter. And there's uh, no point because Peter's dead. Peter is dead, bro. Like Peter yeah. is well and truly dead. He is resting in the grave. Yet um, they are doing these kinds of yeah pagan practices of, of saint worship and veneration. So it's it's really interesting stuff. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. And we are going to have the last our one. final quiz for the week. The last quiz, the last opportunity for you to get in. Um, well, sorry, I just got a message came in that I um. That, ooh, we might read that one out later. Okay, so this is the very last quiz for this morning. Your uh, final opportunity to get in to win the uh, the book Thirteen Weeks of Joy, and it goes like this: In which part of the New Testament is the perseverance of Job recorded? Don't get confused. We said the New Testament, not the Old Testament. Which part of the New Testament is the perseverance of Job recorded? 0491064669 is the number to text if you think you know the answer. Give us a uh, give us a give us a shot at that one. Um, give yourself a shot at that one, I should say. And uh, you could be in, in. Do you know what? If you haven't played all week and you haven't played all day, even if you just get this one right, you never know. You might be the big prize winner. It's happened multiple times before that someone's only ever played once and gotten the uh, the grand prize. So so don't hold back. Send in your guest today. Absolutely. Hey, zero four nine one zero six four six six nine is the number to call or text. We're going to finish off our Bible study and, you know, considering the history of the papacy and how they've worked. So where we got to in our last segment is that essentially what we saw with Catholicism in its initial growth is, again, in an effort to unite the entirety of the Roman Empire, seven-eighths of the world population using religion, again, to just come up and be like, hey, you guys all need to follow this religion that's like fully about self-sacrifice and denial and this is going to all... You know, this is going to somehow form the greatest empire of all time. I think that a government of God will be the greatest empire of all time. But again, you're talking about just people trying to stuff Christianity into Roman culture Mm -hmm. and make something of it. Obvious changes were going to take place. And the first one was, yeah, again, the veneration of saints and the worship of idols. The second one. The significant one for our Bible study this morning is the changing of the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment in the Roman Catechism is now the third commandment, and that is, remember the Lord's day to keep it holy. That's all the Catechism says, remember the Lord's day. But when we read it in the Bible, it's remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, in it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your stranger, nor your cattle who is within your gates. No one, uh, for in six days the Lord created heavens and earth and the sea and all that is in them. We have this commandment from God about how it is that we worship him. It is literally a commandment about worship. Now, I would say also, you know, the graven images commandment is about worship too. But this time of Sabbath is a wor- it's it's a time to worship God in memorial of creation, which is the only reason why we can worship God. Amen. Even if let me say this, this is important. Even if God was quote unquote our savior, 
but was not our creator, which I don't even understand how that works because as we talked about with Brad, it is only God who can save us. He, God identifies the boundaries of life and the consequences of sin. God identifies those things, so he needs to be the sacrifice. But in some logical way, we could work out that God was not our creator, but just our savior. Mm. He still wouldn't be worthy of worship. Yeah, wow. Mo- and how I've I know this? I've never even thought about that. That's so true. Moses saved the people of, of through obviously through the power of God, but they're not allowed to worship him. Mm-hmm. Angels do all kinds of things, you know, to help people and whatnot. We're not allowed to worship angels. Mm-hmm. God is only worthy of worship because He is the Creator, and the Sabbath day is the exact thing that outlines that. It is our tie, our legal tie to our understanding of how it is that we worship God. When we come to the end of time, and when we see it's the ideals of the papacy, and it, it, it is actually going to take place, and this is probably going to be our Bible study next week, where we're going to be looking at, um, you know, through what means or method it actually it actually happens and and you know who what what the power which power is it that is going to enforce this but the ideals of the papacy um are going to be the thing that is enforced and one of the biggest ideals of the papacy and one of the most historical changes that they made to god's law is the changing of the sabbath from saturday which is the seventh day of the week to sunday now I don't have enough time to fully just dive into this topic and to just do verse by verse and text by text. And we could. It's it's so, so absolutely clear, the Bible. But I do want to say this. It is impossible to have a Sabbath on the first day. That's true. Because what is Sabbath? Rest. And rest, as we see from creation, always precedes creation or work. God worked for six days and rested the seventh. If God had worked for five days, we would have rested the sixth. If he had worked for four days, we would have rested the fifth. Three days, rested the fourth. Two days, rested the third. One day, if God had worked for one day, we would have rested the second. But if there's no work, then there's no rest. And so God, working one day, the next day would be rest. It's it's impossible to have Sabbath on the first day because first day is the beginning of work rather than the rest from work. But you might be sitting there thinking, well, what does it matter which day it is? Like, what is, why, why is it so important that it is the seventh day rather than the first day? Well, this is the point for me. It's important to God. God. It is important to God. And also... If we just quickly survey the, you know, the foundation of why it is the Sabbath was changed from Saturday to Sunday, it is not because the believers of the Bible started keeping Sunday as Sabbath. Mm. That has been said by Christians throughout history that, uh, well, people who aren't Catholic yet are trying to come up with an apologetical reason as to why we keep Sunday, they'll say, because the believers kept Sunday. There are very few mentions of worshipping on the first day. Or, or any kind of first day activity of worship in the Bible. The, the main one that we have is from the book of Acts where it says, you know, they were gathered together with Paul, Paul worshiping on the first day. But it, that story is completely explainable that they were worshiping throughout the seventh day. And when does the first day start? When did they start in the Bible? 
when the sun goes down. So they worshipped into the into Saturday night. But again, it is important to God because uh, oh. I, I just wanted to quickly say that as well. That's like the only apologetical reason. The other reason, the reason why Sunday exists within Christian tradition and why people keep Sunday is because it was the day that they worshipped the sun. That's right. Yeah, that's <laughs> the origins of it. It was, it was the day of, what for Romans, it was the day of the worship of Sol Invictus. It made so much sense to change the Sabbath to Sunday. Uh, and the reason is because, oh, well then, you know, politically, we don't have to change our, how our weekend works. We don't have to make any more civil regulations to stop people from doing what they're already doing. We don't have to change anything. Everyone can just keep Sunday. Like, its origins are pagan. Its apologetics are false. And ultimately, what it does is it leaves us in a position where we are living in rebellion to God. Now, again, I think that there will be Catholics in heaven because they're living up to the light that they know. I think there will be many people in heaven who are living up to the light that they know, pagans, all kinds of people. But simultaneously, when we come to a knowledge of the truth, when when we're earnestly trying to follow God, and when the Sabbath becomes an issue of the end of time as to whether we are truly worshiping God or not, we need to stand with God on this one. We don't have the room to say, oh, well, maybe it's Sabbath and maybe it's not. No, it is. And we need to be in a position where we say, hey, I'm going to follow God rather than man. Because that's mm-hmm. ultimately what it is. As, as John and Peter stood before the Sanhedrin and said, we'll follow God rather than man, you know, in regards to their sharing of Jesus. Hey, it doesn't matter if it's the Catholic Church or greater Christianity. It doesn't matter who wants to change the Sabbath. I'm going to stand with God rather than man. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. But with hope for humanity there. And we have come to the part of the show where we need to do a few things. We need to give people answers and whatnot. But what we really need to do right now is to spin that wheel because people have answered. And here, oh, here it is. Let's go. Let's go. And we have a winner for this week. Congratulations to Kayla for winning our prize, 13 Steps to Joy by Jennifer Jill Schwerzer. We will be sending that out to you. And, well, I guess with this book, like, it's it's not like a cookbook or a board game or something. It's more like a very personal thing. I guess we can – because always when we – give a prize out we always have some kind of a promise attached to it where we're going to meet you and do something with that prize i guess if we can just meet you kayla and you're just really happy that would be such a blessing so yeah congratulations kayla for winning the prize today let me tell you some answers though mm-hmm. so this morning's quizzes went like this which celestial bodies did joshua command to stay still it was the sun and the moon so while serving as a leader of the israelites during the exodus joshua actually prayed to god to make the sun and the moon stand still so they may win a war which they did praise the lord mm. what name was given to the jewish ruling council that plotted to jesus plotted jesus's death it was the Sanhedrin. Mm. The Sanhedrin consisted of either 23 or 71 elders appointed to sit as a tribunal. So who cleaned Jesus' feet with her hair in Luke? It was Mary, Lazarus' sister. Uh, while dining with the family of Lazarus, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, poured expensive perfume on Jesus' feet and cleaned it with her hair. Which Bible author wrote the most words, totaling 125,139 words? It was Moses, of course. And which part of the New Testament is the perseverance of Job recorded? It's in the book of James, chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Absolutely. So congratulations, everyone, who got 
answers correct this week, and a special congratulations to Kayla. Hey, I got a text message here. It's from David, and David writes in, Hey, Lawson, I get frustrated with myself because you and my elders at my fellowship can hear someone's sermons or, or teaching and write notes, and if someone you know read them, uh, they would understand that topic mentioned. As for me, I hear and can't write down notes that make sense to anyone. I'm, I'm not blessed that way, and it's very upsetting. I just want to say uh, to that, David, um, in terms of you know hearing sermons and hearing Bible studies and going like, I want to be able to explain that to people. Okay, firstly, that is a fantastic thing. I think that we as Christians, all of us, are called to are called to teach or in some level we're called to give reason in season and out of season as to why we have faith and believe reason in season baby. reason in season absolutely so <laughs> that is what we're called to do and so for you to be motivated to say okay i want to be able to share the word of god with someone and you know have those notes down and ready so that i can do that amazing but simultaneously you know i like obviously i'm taking notes like particularly i'm at uni and whatnot and, and writing down notes so i can understand things i'm not that good of a note taker though. I think it's more, this is, this is the best way. This is the best way to learn how to teach these topics. Steal other people's notes. Oh, <laughs> that, that it's, 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 I'm not joking. Okay. Like a lot of the things that I teach and that I say and that I study come from other people. Obviously, if I was writing down those notes, right, mm-hmm. then there would be in, in my own words, but simultaneously, dude, Mr. Lyle Southwell is, he's already done the work for me. He's <laughs> like, I, I have a, he, Lyle has his prophetic code Bible study series and his evangelistic series as well. Yeah. He sent me all the notes to it and I just get to go through and I'm like, Hey, I want to wonder about this topic. And I read his notes. I'll read a Bible commentary. I'll read this. I'll read it. Like that's literally what a Bible commentary is. Mm-hmm. It's just someone's notes about whether it's, whether it's the SDA Bible commentary, the NIV Bible commentary, the Andrews Bible commentary, the, the, the KJV Bible commentary, like who Whoever it is, it's just someone's notes. And so then you can compile that information into your own cohesive thing that makes sense rather than kind of putting all the pressure on you to to write things down. I understand what it's like when you're in a sermon, like, and you're listening to some particular person preach and you're trying to write down or you're listening to like a teacher or a lecturer teach and you're trying to write that down and you're like, oh, okay, I got to make this make sense so that I understand it. But simultaneously, like, at the same time, the things that they're teaching are not new. You know, for example, I talked about the ancient Near Eastern Treaty and how the Deuteronomy is set up like that. That doesn't just come from my theology class of on Torah. It also is a view that's held much by, you know, very, very much by the rest of the theological world. So you can see what other people have said about it. And you can compile all those notes together and you can put it together and then you have something to share. You know, they say this, the first three rules of evangelism are... Plagiarism, plagiarism, and plagiarism. That's a that's a that's something Lyle says. I don't think it's original to him, but he, uh, but he plagiarized. It. He definitely plagiarized that. But essentially, like there is nothing new under the sun. We're getting we are getting our information from God and uh, you know people's observations as to what God has done and what God has said. But I really want to encourage you. Hey, be a teacher of the word. You know, mm. be ready in season out of season. And we've come to the time where well, we have to say goodbye for the weekend. Tell me, Al. Wait, wait, wait. What are you doing this weekend? I'm going to church, bro. Oh, amen. I'm going to church. I'm going to go running. 
you know. Oh, yeah. I, well, Are you still throwing up? Yeah, no. No, I've <laughs> overcome that now. I can oh. go running without, you know, losing my lunch. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. really, really kicking goals. Thank you for bringing that yeah, up on, on air, yeah. Monica. Uh, <laughs> you brought it up first. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm going to go to work today and I'm going to do something that I absolutely love What's so that? much. I'm going to, um, oh, what's it called when you get like a piece of paper and you cover it in plastic and you put it through that little heating machine? Laminating. I'm going to do a bunch of laminating. I'm so excited. I'm going to laminate like 10 signs. You're going to do some lemington-nating. <laughs> yeah. I also love lemingtons. Oh, yeah, lemingtons. Yeah, yeah. So good. It's going to be a good day. Monica. Yeah. Free stuff. Free stuff. End of the show. Did you prep something? Uh, well, I thought... Because you took my laptop. My oh, I, I did too, but I... <laughs> no, we're going to be giving away what we've been giving away all week. So everyone can get in on this. If you go to the Faith FM website, faithfm.com.au, and uh, on the landing page, you will see on the right-hand side, there are 16 different ways that you can enter in to win some Faith FM merchandise, all kinds of merch. Um, definitely stuff you want to get your hand on, represent uh, the work we do here and and um, and uh, and the other shows as well. So the different ways that you can enter, you can uh, interact with the website, uh, send an email telling us what you like, uh, get on the Facebook, on the Instagram, sticking out a secret code word, which is Wheat Bix, many different ways, get yourself in to win. And you can also talk faith, live faith and act faith and you'll grow strong in Jesus Christ. Have a wonderful weekend, guys. God be with you till we meet again. God be with you till we meet again. Precious Lord. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1 800 Faith FM.